Online trolls and bots are not new. As long as there's been an interactive internet, there have been people spreading disinformation and distrust. However, during the 2016 U.S. presidential election cycle, the work of trolls and bots became hyper-visible, as did some countries' support of that work. Politics, bots, and data are the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Joshua Tucker. Tucker is a professor of politics at New York University, as well as director of the university's Jordan Center for Advanced Study of Russia and co-director of NYU's Social Media as Political Participation Lab. Tucker has published with a number of co-authors research examining issues related to trolling, bots, and fake news. He joins us in the studio today after traveling to Miami on a visit sponsored by the Having Her Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies as part of the Colloquium series on Russian media strategies at home and abroad. Josh, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Before we get started with the meat of this conversation, can you explain exactly what a bot is? Oh, that was my question. Mine, uh, mine, mine, mine too. <laughs> All right. So, sure. When we think about actors who post content online, whether it be a comment uh, to a newspaper story or a podcast or a Facebook post or a, t or a Twitter post, uh, we can think about a sort of continuum of ways in which that content could be generated. And one end of the continuum is a human being mm -hmm. who sits down, has a thought, types something, hits enter, and it, and it goes into the ether that way. At the other end, is a computer algorithm mm -hmm. that is programming, that is producing content based on an algorithm. And that algorithm could be incredibly simple. It could just say every 15 minutes, say hello world, right? That algorithm could be slightly more complex. It could be every time the headline on the New York Times changes, mm -hmm. you know, take the text from the New York Times, post the text and then put hashtag fake news after it and post that. Or it could be, you know, every time uh, ambassador, former ambassador Michael McFall texts, you know, tweet at him and, and post this video. So it could be anything like that. Um, and we call that a bot. That's the definition that we use for it. Now, in between that is this kind of interesting category that, we, that has been given the label cyborg. Mm -hmm. And a cyborg would be an account that has some human-generated content and some content generated algorithmically. Now, it's important when thinking about bots to understand that there are lots of legitimate uses for algorithmically generated content, right? So we might think of a helper bot that if you, you know, did you mean to type this or something before okay. you hit this? On Twitter, we might think of the National Weather Service, mm -hmm. right? Which, you know, is tweeting something about a storm warning or something like that. That could be algorithmically generated. Um, I write for this blog at the, at the Washington Post called The Monkey Cage. Right. We have essentially a monkey cage bot, which every time we post a new story, it posts the headline and it posts a link to that headline. So there's lots of, the, the term bot has pejorative content and actually, in our research, we try to distinguish between that by mm -hmm. having something that we call an official account versus a bot for the purpose of our research studies. But for this sort of generic definition of the human to bot continuum here, um, it's important to remember, like, a lot of content is produced by algorithms, and right. there might be very legitimate reasons to produce that algorithmic content. There's also illegitimate reasons to do that as well. So how hard is it to detect a bot? 
Oh, it's really hard. And how, mean, how do you distinguish it from people? Right. So okay. it's so it's incredibly hard. Like so, the way we would want to do this, if we were going to start from scratch, right, and design a, a a way to do this with a machine learning algorithm, the same way we would with any machine learning algorithm, if we're going to use a supervised machine learning model, we want ground truth. Right. Ground truth would involve we would want to know that there are accounts out there that are producing content by algorithms. We'd want to have a bunch of human accounts and then we would want to train a machine to be able to distinguish the differences between them. The problem is, as scholars, if we're trying to find bots, how do we get to that ground truth? And basically, if you think about if you really want to know that the content is a bot, there's only one real way you can definitely know that it's a bot, and that's if you program it yourself, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So that's the first yeah. option you could do. We could, as scholars, go out there and build a whole bunch of bots. The problem would be then, if I built bots and then I built a machine to distinguish bots from not from humans, I would know what my bots were doing. So maybe we could potentially get around that a little bit, and and you could build the bots, uh, John, and then I could try to detect them, and we could build my my training model to sort of based on the bots that you did, and I wouldn't know what rules you were using when you were doing okay. this. The problem is we're not particularly interested as a political scientist in that exercise, right? right? What we're interested in is can we go into in the particular case of the work we've been doing. Can we go into Russian political Twitter and d figure out which accounts are bots? So with that in mind, if we really want to know what these bots in the wild are, because if we build them ourselves, we're going to know the algorithm. We're going to know what we built them on. So we want to know can we what you're really interested in is can we detect bots in the wild? So there's essentially two ways you can do this. One is you need an informant, mm -hmm. right? If you're going to do supervised machine learning, you could need an informant who's going to tell you, no, no, I built these bots. These are, you know, I was paid by X to do them and I built them. Um, or you need to rely on leaked data, right? So you get leaked data, you don't have an, which is essentially a passive informant, right? Like you think there's someone out there who tells you about it, but they don't know they're telling you about it. And there are advantages to that. And there are you know, landmark studies that have been done using leaked data. So for example, uh, the Kingpan and Roberts incredible study, I know you had Gary on the podcast previously, their unbelievable study that they did about sort of upending everything we thought about these 50 centers in China, which turned out not to be 50 centers, and they turned out not to be publishing antagonistic content. They published happy talk, right? Mm -hmm. Like how great it was to be Chinese. That's based on leaked data. So they have real ground truth in the sense that like they are you know very very sure and they do an incredible job in that paper of trying to dismiss all the potential arguments as to why this could be fake but leaked data is leaked data at the end of the day and and they they were really really careful about making this so that's one way you can do it the other but the problem with leaked data is you can't do the study until somebody leaks the data the other problem with leaked data and I love that article, and I think I find it incredibly convincing that they that this stuff was not deliberately leaked or deliberately. But when you're dealing with leaked data, you're trusting someone mm -hmm. that the leak that you, you know there is some possibility if we all rely on leaked data all the time to do these kind of studies that someday someone's going to get played oh, by this, yeah, yeah. right? That's the problem yeah. with leaked data, and so um, so you get the, so there's trade-offs, right? If there was a silver bullet, everyone would would do it. So what we did in our studies is we trained human beings to identify bots. Mm -hmm. oh. And so the limitation to our study is, if the bots are so good that they cannot be trained by the human eye, our method is not going to be able to detect them. Mm -hmm. However, what's incredibly valuable about our method, and our, our goal was to come up with a method that you could deploy at scale, that would be transparent as to how we're coding them as bots, that would be replicable, and that would be retrospective. 
And so what we did to try to do this is we took a, a big collection of data in which we were interested in. In this particular case, it was Russian political Twitter data. And we developed a coding framework. So we basically had someone from our lab, so Sergey Sonovich, who was uh, one of the co-authors on the paper, just looked at a ton of these accounts. And he got very good at distinguishing which were bots and which were not bots. But of course, we can't publish a paper, a scientific paper, that says the way we tell our ground truth is whether Sergey says right. it's ground truth. Right? <laughs> right, yeah. So as much as we would like to have done that. So, so we train students. And so at the height of this project, we had 50 undergraduates in Moscow at the Higher School of Economics working as a team to hand code these bot accounts. Wow. And what's oh. nice about the way that we did this is that it is very much in the open science tradition. Our coding is, is transparent. We trained the students to do this. You could take the coding tomorrow and go get 50 Russians and recode all of our data mm -hmm. with exactly the same coding instrument we used and see if you come up with the same, the same topics. And so we, and then we used a high, we had at least five different undergraduates looking at each of these accounts. We only entered them into our data set as ground truth if we had an intercoder reliability of 0.8 or higher. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, and so that's where we went. Now, does that eliminate subjectivity entirely? No, it doesn't. And does it mean that we might be missing something in the sense of we might there might be accounts that are so clever we can't tell, or there might be accounts that are ambiguous and we sort of miss them? Those are the trade-offs for doing it. The nice thing about it is, though, we have our data, and what, what we essentially did was we built a nice little piece of software. So Denise Ducal, who's one of the co-authors on the paper and the lead authors on the technical papers, um, built this nice little piece of software that takes all the tweets from the same account in your collection and displays them hmm. in a way that looks kind of like a Twitter account. right? Because the other way you would do this is you just click on the Twitter account itself. But that's not replicable. Mm -hmm. Because if you click on the account today, and John, you click on the account in three weeks, you're going to see something different. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. I, And it's not retrospective either. You can't say, I really want to see what this looked like in 2014. Right. But with our method of having a, a sort of cache data set that you then display in this sort of quasi-Twitter-like page, that means, again, that if you get 50 undergraduates who go and code this tomorrow, they can see the exact same thing my 50 undergraduates mm -hmm. coded, and you can check to see if we, if we get similar right. results. So jumping from definitions to findings, <laughs> so what, what's the most interesting thing you think you've discovered in looking at Russian Twitter bots? So I would say there were three things we discovered that were super interesting. The first was the sheer quantity of uh, tweets in our accounts that were produced by accounts that we labeled as bots. To be very clear, this is not a benchmarking of Twitter. We were using a very specific collection of data. We had a series of, we used Twitter's search API to collect the data, which meant we fed the, the, the API a whole bunch of keywords. We got all the tweets about those particular keywords. We then only kept in our collection, for our, the point of view of our analysis, we only collected, we only kept accounts where at least 75% of the tweets were in Russian. Okay. So this was Russian political Twitter. We may have missed tweets about politics, we may have gotten other things, but we found, on average, across this now four-year period that we've looked at, that almost 50% of the content on any given day was being produced by bots. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now. That's the first thing that was interesting. So that's much, much higher than the baseline level that is reported as being produced by mm -hmm. bots on Twitter. The second thing we found that was super interesting was that a lot of these bots were simply tweeting news headlines. Mm -hmm. Some of them had links, but a lot of them didn't. And if you think about it, 
it makes zero sense if you're trying to fool humans or convince humans about anything to tweet a news headline without tweeting a link to that news headline. So our best guess as to what's going on there, and this is only a guess, is that these are accounts that were trying to fool other algorithms, oh. not human beings, oh. mm -hmm. that they were trying to manipulate search engine optimization mm -hmm. so that when you would see, so Yandex.ru, which is kind of like a Google of Russia, had for a long time this sort of most popular news stories on the first page. We think perhaps they were trying to manipulate that. Perhaps they were trying to manipulate Google search so that when things popped up, and if you fast forward, as in your introduction, Rosemary, in talking about the US 2016 elections, one of the things we think that was going on there was surfacing RT, yeah. uh, the Russian sort of state propaganda yeah. or state news agency that has a strong propaganda function to it. <laughs> Right. We think that this is one of the interesting things that was happening was that RT is sort of showing up high in search algorithms. Okay. If that's the case, we may have seen the antecedent of that in Russian domestic politics. Oh, wow. yeah. So I would say the second big thing we would take away from this is that our sense is that if we think about bots only as trying to fool humans, we may be missing an important part of the story, which is interesting because going back to our original conversation about whether our method can catch increasingly sophisticated actors. Well, increasingly sophisticated actors to fool hum, whom, sorry, to fool whom. If it's increasingly sophisticated actors to fool algorithms, that might not be really hard for, an, for a student or a human to detect. Mm -hmm. If it's increasingly sophisticated algorithms to fool, fool humans, that may be tougher for humans to detect. So that was the second thing we found. And I started, it changed the way I thought about bots a bit. Mm -hmm. The third thing we found that was super interesting was that, um, we discovered, so we came at this project because we were interested in how authoritarian regimes and competitive authoritarian regimes respond to online opposition. How are they dealing with this kind of new threat that's out there? And we've written sort of extensively about this. We can talk more about that topic generally if you're interested in it. I just, you know, we just saw, Richard, you saw the talk, which started with, you know, the talk I gave here at Miami started with about 15 to 20 minutes on this topic here. But that got us to bots because we had this whole classification of all different things regimes could be doing. And we wanted to study this. How were regimes responding in the aftermath of the Arab Spring and, this, mm -hmm. and the 2011 uh, protests after the Russian elections? So that's what we wanted to study. You know, we had this whole classification. One of the things we do is, well, regimes might try to change the nature of the online conversation, a la the Kingpin and Roberts work in China. And so we set out to look for actors that might be doing this. We set out to look for bots. We found bots. But the leap at that point is, oh, good, we found the bots. Now we can find Russian government, uh, you know, online strategy for dealing with online upset. No, yeah. it turns out not to be the case because what we quickly discovered is that not all of these bots were pro-regime. Mm -hmm. In fact, it turns out that when we have the, when we um, collect when we have enough tweets in an account that we could actually estimate the political orientation of that account, it turned out that only slightly more than a quarter of the accounts in our collection would we have did we classify as pro-regime mm. bots. Almost fifty percent of the bots were what we would call neutral bots that were sort of tweeting these new headlines or they were indiscriminate or they weren't, they didn't seem to have any sort of political message. But the interesting thing is we also found pro-opposition bots and we also found essentially what we call sort of pro-Kiev, pro the government in Kiev, sort of pro-Ukrainian bots that would be anti-Russia's activity in Ukraine. And when you sum up the combined activity of the pro-opposition bots and the pro-Kiev uh, bots, 
it's roughly about the same amount of activity, certainly the roughly the same number of accounts that we could find as the pro Kremlin bots. So there's two messages. I think one message is the substantive message, which is that, as always, the sim, you know, there's a lot going on in the online information ecosystem, and simplistic explanations are probably missing sort of more nuanced stories. And a lot of what we find going on in the online information space is always cat and mouse games. In retrospect, it doesn't seem surprising that if we think the regime would have started using bots, that opponents of the regime yeah. would start using mm -hmm. bots. Sure. The second thing is a methodological point and it's for people who want to study this sort of thing, which is if you build bot detection software because you want to find, the, you want to track the activity of, state, of a state actor, you are going to, at best, have a lot of noise in your data mm. if you don't actually um, take this secondary step of trying to code whether or not your bots are actually a pro-state actor. At worst, you're going to have a lot of bias because you're going to be coding activity that is actually anti-state activity. And I think that applies. You want to think about political campaigns. You want to think about any, oh, Brexit. We assume all the bot activity is on the anti-Brexit side. I mean, I haven't looked at this data, but I, any, any study I would do now, that would be the next thing I would do that would check okay. that. So those mm -hmm. are sort of the three big takeaways that were yeah. interesting to us. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking bots, data, and social media with NYU's Joshua Tucker. He's at Miami University on a visit sponsored by the Havinghurst Center for Russian and Post-Soviet Studies as part of the colloquium series on Russian media strategies at home and abroad. Wow. You know, the, just to follow up on one, one point you raised there, I, I was very surprised to read about the, the neutral actors. That, that was the part when I was, was looking at that paper that, that really surprised me to, to think about those surfacing. And, I, and, and you know, consistent with when, when you're talking about that bots are often used as amplifiers for message, you know, I, I could see the, the pro and the anti bots coming into play as, as we're thinking about a government actors. But I, I was trying to think about what's, what's the role of these neutral actors. And I, it, from your comment, I was wondering if perhaps it's the, this search engine optimization component yeah. or something related it's to economic. that. economic. So that's the best guess we have for them. I mean, mm -hmm. and it's possible, you know, we, again, we were trying to be conservative in this. We did not want to make errors of calling, of classifying things as something where they weren't. So we were trying to avoid, we were trying to maximize precision and, and, and at the expense of potentially higher recall. It is possible that one could build, okay, so by the way, Classifying the political orientation turns out to be a much, much more difficult task mm -hmm. than classifying whether the account is a bot or not. And we had to kind of go back and, and continually work on and getting cleaner coding from students and being, you know, uh, careful about this. And we built, ended up having, we built the, the classifier that predicts the political orientation includes text. Whereas we try, we built the mm. bot or not classifier to not include textual features in the hope that it would transcend national boundaries. But of course, this is going to involve unigrams and bigrams and all sorts of things like that. So it's already based on just the text that's in there. It was a much more difficult classification process. Now you could imagine building, and again, this was the first time anyone, you know, we had ever done anything like this. This was a kind of different approach to dealing with bot classification. Um, and so you could imagine a sort of next stage, generation 2.0 of this political orientation, that takes these neutral accounts and if they have a link, opens up that link, mm -hmm. collects the text in the link, and actually gets better at saying this and says, you know what, actually a lot of these neutral accounts, they're they're just they're not saying anything that's pro-regime or anti-regime, but they're sharing newspaper stories that are okay. pro-regime. Mm -hmm. We actually in our in in other work that we're doing on on the Russian troll accounts from the 2016 election are working uh, very intensely with this link data 
Um, mm. And so that's a secondary stage of analysis. So the first answer to your question is, it's possible that there that some of these, what we're calling neutral accounts, these are accounts sharing news stories, but those news stories have a particular slant mm -hmm. to them. So that's one possibility. The second possibility is, is honestly that this is just a sort of, these are media sources buying botnets to you know, make many more copies of their headlines of their news stories online. Mm -hmm. And I still think that's Occam's razor, that that's the simplest thing. There's another, there are other possibilities for what these headlines could be. Like the other thing that I've come up with that, you know, seems potentially interesting is if you were trying to hide an account from Twitter, let's imagine you wanted to hold back a whole set of bot accounts to be able to use in a crisis. And we do find that the sort of in our first paper on this, on the, just the bot detection, there's a sharp upshot in the use of bots immediately after the Crimea conflict begins. Oh. Oh. So imagine you were trying to hold back a set of bots, and you know that if you have an account that hasn't tweeted for two years, and then it tweets 50 times, it's gonna get shut down. And you have to build a history of that account doing something. But you know if you have an account that every night at midnight mm -hmm. tweets, hello world, maybe that's gonna get flagged. <laughs> mm -hmm. If you had to build something that would randomly tweet at different times and randomly produce different text, saying take the top story from this newspaper every time the upper right-hand story on the front page changes, that's not a bad algorithm, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's controlled by a human. A human is making the decision when uh -huh. to change the news story. That's different. Tech. I mean, I'm just making all this up. I'm speculating. <laughs> like, we have no evidence. We have no evidence that this is what's happening. But it seems like a kind of cool strategy. And then if you told it to do that, like, I don't know, two or three times a day, then when it suddenly tweets 25 times one day, that maybe doesn't look so out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. So that's that's another possibility of what was going on. I'm still an Occam's razor kind of person. I still think the most likely outcome is that these are the media companies themselves mm -hmm. are facilitating this, whether yeah. they're paying it, whether they're doing it. Now, to be very clear, these are not, we had this official category in our accounts. You would not have gotten counted as a bot if you were the official Washington Post you know, uh, account. That would be in our classification. That would be an official account. Okay. Hey, can you talk a little bit about uh, fake news and some <laughs> of your research on fake news dissemination on uh, on Facebook? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. So we recently uh, came out. We recently came out with a study about a month ago, um, where we were looking at the question of who shared fake news on Facebook. Um, and if you want to think about, just to back up a second here, there's been a lot of talk about fake news. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But fake news is essentially, the study of fake news in politics is essentially four separate questions. They're, of course, interrelated. The first question is, who produces fake news? The second question is, who disseminates fake news or who shares fake news? The third question is, who's exposed to fake news? And the fourth question is, what's the effect of being exposed to fake news? So if you want to get the full picture mm -hmm. of sort of fake news in the 2016 election, you want to know answers to all of those questions. I'm going to start by saying we know almost nothing about the last part of that question. Wow. So anyone who wants yeah. to jump to the effect of fake news right. on the election was X. There's an awful lot of speculation in that mm -hmm. because we know almost nothing about the exposure to fake news. In fact, one of the more interesting results I've heard from a recent study is that when you prime people to think about fake news, they're not actually any better at identifying fake news, but they're more likely to think real news is fake. Oh, wow. Oh. So we really don't know much about that last step at this point. We do know quite a bit from 2016 about who was producing fake news, right? There's the sort of Macedonian teenager, these kind of profit maximizers. Interestingly enough, and almost frighteningly, 
we think in 2016 it was more economic actors than political mm -hmm. actors. Um, although to expect that that's going to continue in the future is probably a folly now that people know you can do this sort of thing. <laughs> Where our research came in was at that second stage, which was who was actually sharing fake news. And you know, there, one of the things about social media studies, and the SMAP lab does this all the time, is that the vast majority of research we've done is on Twitter data. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do research on Twitter data, and everyone does research on Twitter data, is that well, for the most part, Twitter data has been much easier to get access to, mm -hmm. in part because mo you know the vast majority of tweets are public. People tweet about them being public, and Twitter, for the most part, has been quite uh, has historically <laughs> been quite good about making their data available for academic research. It's gotten a little more complicated recently, um, but of course, we know that, and there are these incredible reports from Pew. If you've seen these Pew social media mm -hmm. usage reports, we know most people aren't on only one platform, and if they are on only one platform, it's Facebook, mm -hmm. right? And Facebook is the giant, you know, the giant behemoth in the room. So we do all these studies on Twitter. We think they're important. We do. Think Think they're important for politics. I mean, it's amazing data. We're social scientists. Like, we can get data on 20% of the population. That's really amazing, right? Like, mm -hmm. but if you can go to Facebook, you can get data on 70% of the adult population. And obviously, that's you know that's where a lot of stuff is happening. And and that's the way the field's developed. And you know, we're hoping that in the future there's going to be more and more access to Facebook data for academic researchers. And we could talk more about that because that's a whole other story yeah. right now with the sort of push and shove between transparency and mm -hmm. privacy mm -hmm. concerns. Um, but we were in a very unique position, which was that going into the 2016 election, we had run a panel survey where we had surveyed a panel of people over the course, uh, three times over the course of the election. And we asked the people who reported having Facebook accounts if they were okay sharing some of their Facebook data with us. So we had permission from them. We told them about it. We gave them you know, multiple opportunities to stop doing this thing. and. It turns out, much to our surprise, this was a bit experimental, that over half our respondents, or about half of our respondents who reported having Facebook accounts were willing to share some of their Facebook data with us for wow. the purpose of this academic study. So we had Facebook data, and we didn't get a lot of Facebook data from them, but we got what they posted over the course of the election campaign. So one of the challenges with survey data and media consumption, as, as you guys know well, is that you're always relying on recall. Right. You're asking right. people questions, mm -hmm. right? The beauty of Nielsen is that there's a box on the TV, so you actually know what was on, even if you don't know who was watching it, right? Um, and the problem, and the and social media data, which is objective indicators of data, often you have to estimate covariates, and we can do really fancy things to estimate covariates with social media data, which is really kind of cool. But at the end of the day, you're still estimating. It's an extra step of estimation. When you have survey data linked to social media data, you don't have to estimate the covariates because these are people that you already know a lot about from the survey, and you don't have to rely on recall. So what we were able to do after the election that we quickly realized was we could actually look at who had shared fake news. And so that's what we went and did. And this study is essentially basically looking at the relationship between a number of demographic covariates and people who shared fake news. And we very self-consciously didn't code fake news ourselves. We took a number of lists that were out there uh, in the field, and we could actually look at who posted this online. And the, the sort of takeaway findings mm -hmm. from the story, from the, from the study were the following. First, we found that in our study, less than 90% of our respondents shared any instance of fake news. There were a few people who shared a lot. The next highest number was people who shared one story. So consistent with a number of other studies that have come out recently, we found that sort of this 
this part of the behavior, the sharing of fake news, is a high, you know, a high activity among really, really small mm -hmm. numbers of people and non-existent among over 90% mm -hmm. of our sample. That was the first thing. The second big finding, however, that came out of it um, was that we did find that on average, people who were older shared significantly more mm -hmm. links to fake news websites than people who were younger. And in particular, we had this kind of headline finding where the over 65s in our study shared on average seven times as many links as the 18 to 29 year olds in the study. So that was the second big finding. So, so the big question for me is when, when I hear about this is, is what you talked about interventions to increase discernment of, of such information. I mean, you know, so what, what ideas or what kind of uh, suggestions, recommendations do you, can, do you think about? I mean, even if you don't have a, a, a clean call answer of what's going to work, what are ideas for making people kind of less prone and less susceptible to the effects of these news? Well, I, think, I mean, I think the thing that comes out of our study that's important is that if your reaction to fake news is let's go into high schools and teach digital literacy, right? <laughs> that's not going to solve the issue, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And it's a great thing. Like, my kids are learning digital literacy, you know, in high school, and that's wonderful for, you know, for them to do that. I think kids are going to, the, the kids who are in school right now are going to concern, consume the vast majority of information that they consume about politics online. We should teach them digital literacy. But that's not going to, that's not going to deal with this. So if we do think that teaching digital literacy, whatever that is, right, is an important antidote to sharing fake news, to you know, to being convinced by fake news of things, we have to think creatively about ways to do this outside of just the schools, mm -hmm. right? And in particular, we might want to do it. We might want to overemphasize this kind of training with people for whom they have encountered this technology at a point in their life that is a later point in their life where they have consumed news through other vehicles previously. However. With that being said, I think we need to learn more basic scientific understanding of what is determining why people are sharing fake news. And let me give you, I think the fundamental crux of the matter is we need to know if people share are sharing fake news, and this is the next studies that we want to do. We want to understand whether people are sharing fake news because they think it's true. And therefore, if we can get them to understand that it's not true, they won't share fake news. Or if people are sharing fake news because either they don't care if it's true mm -hmm. or they know it's fake, but they're sharing it out of A, the hope that it will convince other people, or B, because they're just using it to display identity, right? If you just want to say, oh, look, the Pope endorsed Donald Trump, right? I know right. that's ridiculous, but I'm going to share that too with all my friends so that they know how much I like Donald Trump and how much I dislike Hillary Clinton. If we don't get this sort of underlying story straight here. If you design interventions that are designed to solve a problem that's based on people sharing fake news because they think it's false, right? Because they think it's false. And you think, oh, if I can just convince them it's uh, because they think it's true and I can just convince them it's false, they won't share it. If people are sharing it and don't care whether it's false or not, those interventions are going are mm -hmm. to fall flat. Right. Moreover, I think we really, before we start running out and doing this stuff, we want to understand what the effect on people is of priming them to think about fake news, mm -hmm. right? And, and what's dangerous about the current moment is that there is such a furor and uproar about so many things happening online with fake news being one of them, 
right? That we are rushing out with potential solutions before we understand the basic process that's under that's underlying here. And so I think this is really a moment where we need basic research. And we need that research because there's intense pressure on policymakers to do something about this. I mean, if you think about this for a second, what you have is you have lots of people calling on the platforms right, to immediately get rid of fake news. Mm -hmm. Sounds great as a normative concept, right? But once you say you have to get rid of fake news, they've got to decide what fake news is, mm -hmm. right? I didn't even want to decide what fake news is as a scholar who was studying it because I didn't want it to get in the way of my analysis and be a potential bias in what I was doing as analysis. So we are asking, right, we are essentially talking about potentially outsourcing decisions on what's legitimate news and what's not legitimate news to giant multinational corporations. And if I came in and said, you know what, I think we should legislate that Exxon Mobile should be, Exxon, not mobile, Exxon Mobile, you know, Exxon gets to decide what goes out in the New York Times, everyone would look at me like I was crazy. But if I say Facebook should be legislated to take down things, stories that Facebook determines are false, Right, then people are saying, this is what people are calling on them to do. So I think there's a lot at stake mm -hmm. here because of the huge pressure on governments, on the platforms themselves, and uh, it calls out for, for more basic research, and a lot of it, and quickly. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Josh, thank you so much for being here today. That was my pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.